This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, two, one. But I'm working out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 3. Of the podcast, it is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Thursday, December 3rd, 2020, people. I hope everybody is having a great morning, and I hope everybody had a good sleep, because as you sleep, AT works for the second straight night. I am recording late following great college basketball, terrorizing my neighbors as I record here about 1 o'clock Eastern time. But for, again, a second straight night, we got a great slate of college basketball on Tuesday. I recorded immediately following the Champions Classic, Duke, Michigan State, Kentucky, Kansas. If you did not listen to that episode, go ahead and find it. Uh, Wednesday night here, I am recording immediately following Gonzaga, West Virginia, Baylor, Illinois, two really fun games between four really, really, really good teams that got together in Indianapolis. So we are going to talk about both games. I thought Gonzaga and Baylor both asserted themselves well. We will talk about the fact of is Baylor in their first national showing actually looking better than they did last year. I think that's the conversation that is going to come out of this Baylor game. Baylor was incredible last year. I think you could argue that they look better, that their ceiling might be higher in 2021 if that's possible. We'll also talk that crazy Gonzaga game, which got scary for a second when Gonzaga's best player, Jalen Suggs, went down with what looked like a terrifying injury. Thankfully, he was not only okay, he came back in the game after we all thought he might be lost for the season. We'll talk about those two games, briefly talk about some of the other college basketball. Then we'll transition into football because this is that fun time of year where we find the balance between college football and college basketball. And one, we obviously have a huge weekend coming up. But two, the story that continues to evolve. Remember yesterday I was telling you Kirk Herbstreet was saying that Michigan might duck Ohio State. They might wave the white flag. Well, sure enough, Michigan is out with COVID, but now the Big Ten saying potentially that Ohio State could still be in the conference championship game. We'll talk about that. We'll frankly talk about why I am more interested in how the Big Ten has treated another team that is not Ohio State and Michigan throughout this process. We'll wrap with some of the big games and get out of here, get you into your Thursday. And I hope everybody does have a great Thursday. Before we get started, very briefly, I want to remind you, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Air Tour Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is the way to go. 
Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Uh, go ahead, leave us a quick review on iTunes if you can, if you can help. It really does help us move up the charts. Thank you to all of you that have done that. Of course, make sure you're following me on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod. Uh, by the way, I should mention, as we hit the holiday season here, we just had Black Friday, we just had Cyber Monday, probably worth mentioning. Uh, I've said it before, but I am on Cameo. So if you want something cheap, easy for your friends for the holiday season, find me on Cameo. I'll shoot you a personalized video, Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, birthday, funeral, whatever you want. Uh, If you have friends that listen to this show, if you have family that listens to this show, it's a great gift. Find me on Cameo. I'll say whatever you want as long as it's appropriate. But uh, yeah, Cameo.com slash Aaron underscore Torres. And with that said, people, there is no more time to waste because we got so much good basketball on Wednesday. And obviously, look, Feast Week is always an incredible week. It's obviously different this this year being after the Thanksgiving holiday, but it delivered And it was an incredible week, and it was kind of funny because on Tuesday, I think I mentioned it on Tuesday night show into Wednesday, but on Tuesday, I kind of referenced after the Kentucky-Kansas game was done that while the games on Tuesday were nice, Michigan State, Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, uh, well, they feature the the, the big names, the big blue blood uh, programs. It was actually Wednesday's games that featured the real national championship contenders. Now, obviously, look, everyone is a varying degree of a national championship contender. I don't believe that West Virginia is in that mix necessarily, but they're really good. I could argue they're as good as anybody that played on Tuesday night, and that doesn't include Gonzaga, Baylor, and Illinois who I do believe are at the very least in the Final Four discussion, if not the national championship discussion. And so let's talk about these two games. And really it was kind of interesting because Gonzaga probably had the more interesting, compelling storyline with the Jalen Suggs news, which I'll get into in a little bit. But because I did talk about Gonzaga on last episode, I do want to focus on Baylor and I do want to focus on the Bears for this very simple reason. One, it was the first chance that many of us, most of us, frankly, had a chance to watch this team. They were supposed to play last week at Mohegan Sun. Uh, They get basically bullied out of that tournament, as I told you the other day. Uh, And so they get to Vegas. They play a couple games in Vegas. Scott Drew isn't there. Scott Drew returns. They get the number five team in the country, and everyone's kind of wondering, well, what is this team going to look like? Uh, Yeah, we got the answer on Tuesday night. They play Illinois, number five ranked team in the country, and they beat Illinois 82-69. to uh, And it sounds crazy, but I'm just going to say it. The storyline out of this game to me, and I wouldn't say it if I didn't really believe it, is to me, the question is, is it possible that Baylor is actually better this year than last year? And it might sound crazy, and I know we have some Baylor fans that listen. So hear me out. I don't want to go overboard too quickly. But first of all, I do think we need to contextualize how good Baylor was last season. Because I do think it's easy to forget by the end of the year, Kansas had kind of become the team du jour that everybody assumed was going to win the national championship. Dayton was buzzy. Seton Hall was buzzy. Uh, San Diego State was buzzy. But Baylor was, from start to finish, the most consistent team in college basketball last year. Probably my favorite stat, which I feel like is still completely underappreciated. Last year, Baylor lost their second game of the season on November 8th. They did not lose again 
until February 22nd against Kansas, which to me is just a stunning stat, a stunning thing to think about. The idea that that Baylor went essentially the entire college basketball season, essentially all of November, all of December for sure, all of January, and about 80% of February without losing a game. That is inconceivable. Baylor also spent five weeks at number one in the country, which was actually the longest streak in college basketball uh, since 2015 when Kentucky started the season 38-0, went into the NCAA tournament 34-0. And Scott Drew was actually the one that told me that on this podcast, a friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, Scott Drew, uh, did mention that last season. So an incredible season for Baylor. It would have ended with the number one seed. They were a little bit banged up, but I thought going into this season, I did think there were some legitimate questions. First of all, when you looked at this team, you had to remember a few things. They had a great low post presence in a kid named Freddie Gillespie who graduated. He was essentially the only real impact player that was not back from last year, but he was really the glue that kind of held this team together. They had a bunch of really good guards, a kid named Jared Butler, who was a, a all Big 12 type player. I believe he should be a first team preseason All-American this year. Macy Oteague, Davion Mitchell, but this kid Freddie Gillespie was the guy that held this team all together. And I did wonder how would this team handle life without him? And then the second question was kind of very simply, you have three guards that were all really good last year. You have a couple freshmen coming in. You have a couple transfers sitting out, including this kid, Adam Flagler, who we all learned about on uh, Wednesday night. And I kind of did wonder to myself, is it possible there are too many mouths to feed in the backcourt with this team? And is there concern in the front court? Uh, yeah, safe to say uh, neither of them is an issue. First of all, in the front court, the kid Freddie Gillespie has graduated. He is now, I believe, with the Dallas Mavericks. But even without him, Baylor has done it again. They had two big guys that stepped up and played really well. You know, I don't want to say in his absence because he's not there anymore. One was a kid... Uh, named Flo Thamba. The second one, a kid named, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Jonathan Chumachachua. I don't know if I said that right. I apologize. Scott Drew calls him JTT. Uh, Jay Billis on the broadcast called him Everyday John. But regardless, this kid to me was a complete revelation. He was a sit-out transfer from UNLV, and he was phenomenal. Finished the game with nine points, nine rebounds, and really controlled the paint against a good Illinois team that has a good low post presence in the kid named Kofi Coburn, who was obviously a phenomenal player last year, Big East or Big Big Ten, excuse me, freshman of the year. So that was one. They're good in the front court. They got two guys to replace the guy that they lost last year, and then in the back court. It's kind of crazy because I think last year, Baylor legitimately probably had the best backcourt in the country, and somehow they're better this year. As I mentioned, Jared Butler was the engine that made this team go. 16 points per game last year. Best player on this team. I had him as my preseason national player of the year. I'm going to be real. He was kind of just a dude on Wednesday night. He kind of didn't stand out. He kind of wasn't all that incredible. Instead, it was a transfer named Adam Flagler, who I just mentioned, who finished with 18 points. And overall, the four Baylor guys that I mentioned, the three guards from last year, Jared Butler, Macy Oteague, Davion Mitchell, and this new kid, Adam Flagler, 
all finished with double figures. And so when I look at this team, I'm just telling you guys, I watched a ton of Baylor games last year because I was the only one that picked them to go to the Final Four, so you know I was locked in on them. But when I watched this team, they were really good. I think they might be better this year. Again, you have four legitimate threats to go for 20 points on any given night from the perimeter. You now have two rim protectors up front. And it's not as though they were not doing this against a good team, right? It's one thing if they just beat up on somebody and you have no context to figure out if they're good or not. Illinois came into this game 3-0. They have probably the most talented starting five in the Big Ten. I would argue one of the five most talented starting fives in college basketball. Their point guard, Io DeSumo, is going to be a first-round pick this year. The kid, Kofi Coburn, is going to be an NBA draft pick. And I believe they have a freshman named Adam Miller, who is an NBA player. And when you factor those guys in with a bunch of really solid veteran role players, Illinois, to me, is a legitimate top-10 team. I really like them. I really like what they're about. And Baylor, while they struggled, a li- I don't even want to say they struggled. It was just a very competitive game early. Baylor was able to pull away late because they have so many weapons. And so when I look at this team, first of all, it's a credit to Scott Drew because I was thinking about this as I was prepping this show, but you have two guys that have basically sat out last season, one transfer from the low, low, low major level in Adam Flagler, the other one transferred from UNLV, but it's a testament to their program that it feels like every year they use that red shirt. I, I remember actually asking Scott Drew about it on this podcast, and he talked about the fact that he always offers players the chance to red shirt, even if they don't have to. But he uses the red shirt, he develops guys, and that next crew was ready to step up. But the crazy thing is, the previous crew is still there. And so when I look at this team, it goes back to what I said a minute ago. When I look at Baylor, I truly believe that a team that was good enough to win the national championship this last year is right on track for the same going into 2021, and believe it or not, may even be better. They have, they're deeper at the guard position. They have more guys that can score. They have four guys in the backcourt that I believe can put up 20-plus points a game. They got two rim protectors down low, and they just proved it on the biggest stage against a legitimate top-five Illinois team. And oh, by the way, they got a big game coming up on Saturday, which we are going to talk about momentarily. Before we get to that, though, I do want to talk about the other game at the Jimmy V Classic on Wednesday night, and that was West Virginia-Gonzaga. And you guys know I was excited about this one. I actually picked both Gonzaga and West Virginia in my preseason Final Four. I had Gonzaga as my preseason national championship team. And, excuse me, this was kind of a crazy setup because for people who do not remember, this was supposed to be the game that Tennessee played Gonzaga in this evening. Obviously, Tennessee had a COVID situation involving many people in the program, including Rick Barnes. Glad to hear that everybody is getting healthy. But I had a bunch of Tennessee fans mention to me, man, we wish we had had the chance to play. But West Virginia takes Gonzaga, or West Virginia takes Tennessee's place. They play Gonzaga. And this was just kind of a crazy game from the perspective that, like, Every emotion possible basically came out during this game. It started kind of the way that we all expected. West Virginia tried to exert their will, use brute physicality, toughness, elbows, grit, grime, dirt under the fingernails. Like, that's how West Virginia plays. Gonzaga, on the other hand, they want to play fast. They want to score in transition, all that kind of stuff. And so for the first 8, 9, 10 minutes of the game... It feels like it's just a battle of wills. West Virginia makes a 6-0 run. Gonzaga makes a 7-2 run. West Virginia goes on a 4-1 run. And it's just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. 
Well, then we all know what happened, and it was a very scary situation for people who did not see it, but Gonzaga's best player, Jalen Suggs, went down with a very serious-looking injury. And for people who don't remember the deal on Jalen Suggs, I mentioned on Monday's episode, but I will repeat it. He is a consensus top 10 recruit, the highest rated recruit to ever come to Gonzaga. He is a kid that is, is believed to be an unquestionable one and done, a top 15 lottery pick type talent. Um, and he has been Gonzaga's best player throughout the early portion of this season, which is kind of crazy because as I've said many times, Gonzaga had two or three guys that could have gone pro that decided to come back. Corey Kispert, my guy, Joel they both of them, sorry, I can't, I can't even take myself seriously. Both those guys could have gone pro. They decided to come back, and yet all of a sudden this kid Jalen Suggs comes in, and he is by far the best player on this team, and I would argue through the first four, five, six days of college basketball, he has been the best player in college basketball. And so it was absolutely horrifying when middle of the first half, he goes down, he's going for a rebound, he kind of twists his, his lower leg in a weird angle, and he goes down and he grabs what appears to be, frankly, his Achilles. And I don't claim to be a doctor, I know, I know, surprise, surprise, I'm doing a sports podcast here at 10.30 at night, uh, so yeah, I'm not a doctor, okay? Uh, don't hand me a scalpel, uh, I'm not even good at operation, basically, for lack of a better term, but uh, we're all watching, and it looked like it was an Achilles injury. And all the Twitter doctors, myself included, kind of jumped to that worst case scenario. And for a while, it looked very scary. Jalen Suggs kept grabbing the Achilles area. He could not put any weight on his foot when he walked off the court. And it was a mortifying situation. Because we all understand what the Achilles injury does. We've all seen Kevin Durant here over the last couple months uh, trying to battle back from this injury. And we know it's a serious injury that some guys never fully recover from. And so when it happened, um, it was kind of just like a, a terrifying worst case scenario, right? Because on the one hand, you're worried about this kid. You're worried about his future. He is a kid that, as I said, probably could have gone to the G League or pursued professional opportunities, but wanted to come to college basketball, wanted this stage. And so you worry, like, is he ever going to get that money that he was owed? Will his career ever be the same? Will his draft stock drop? Gonzaga, obviously, the, the team itself is not the bigger concern, but you worry about Gonzaga's chances to win a national championship. And you're just mortified. Um, and there was nothing you could do, and it was kind of eerie, and you could see that Gonzaga wasn't themselves after that injury. But it was kind of crazy, because if you were watching the broadcast, they kept going to Suggs, and it kept kind of getting progressively a little bit better, where you go to him, and he's on the sideline, he's got a towel over his head, and it looks like he's basically screaming in pain. You're like, oh my God, this is terrible. His career's never going to be the same. And then all of a sudden they bring him to the tunnel, but they're not bringing him all the way back into the locker room. And then he's still in the tunnel, and then he's walking in the tunnel. And then next thing you know, he's actually in the second half checking into the game, which was kind of one of the most surreal things that I can remember seeing in recent sports memory. Listen, I'm not saying this guy is Willis Reed or anything, but it went from we didn't know if this guy was going to be done for the season, career-altering injury, and then all of a sudden, like in, in a 45-minute span in real time, he's checking back into the game. And so it was kind of crazy to watch. First of all, it was super cool to watch. I'll tell you this, he's one of my favorite players in college basketball already. 
because we know what the climate is in college sports right now. Oh, come on, he's hurt. Shut him down. Let him sit out. At the very least, I saw people on social media like, well, why is Mark Few putting him back in? And again, you know where I stand on this. If the doctors say it's okay, if the kid wants to go in, you let him play. Um, But I just love the fact that he wanted to go back in, that he's a competitor, that he's tough. As I said on a previous show, he is a former high school football all-state caliber player, Mr. Football in the state of Minnesota. So you know he's got that toughness. He decides to go back in, and I really think it sparked the team. It's not as though he played great when he went back in, although in his defense, um, he was basically playing on one ankle, so I can absolutely forgive him. But, uh, but it was still incredible to watch, and it was incredible to see this kid come back into the game, and I think it really inspired Gonzaga. Beyond him, what I would also say is this. One of my favorite punching bags through the years was actually the best player on the court, and that was Andrew Nemhard. And if you remember, I've talked about Andrew Nemhard a ton on this show, but he was the kid that was at Florida for the last two years, never really got better, declared for the draft twice, pulled out of the draft twice. And when he decided to transfer, I was really critical. I was basically like, dude, if you don't if you if you want to be an NBA player, going somewhere else isn't going to be the answer. Get in the gym, get better, work on your skills. Uh, but when he decided to go to Gonzaga, I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was a good fit if he was going to leave. Uh, Gonzaga's obviously produced a lot of good point guards through the years. And so I did think it was kind of a good fit when he decided to leave. But I was still kind of like, is he going to buy into the culture? If you remember, he was Florida. He led Florida in minutes. He was second in shots. And I was kind of sitting there saying like, okay, when he gets to, to Gonzaga, Is he going to be willing to be the third or fourth guard on Gonzaga? Is he going to be willing to come off the bench when he started every single game at Florida? And so I've been critical of this kid. I've said that I didn't believe he should transfer. When he transferred, I said I believed he should redshirt. I believed he could be a concern for the team. So listen, sometimes in life you got to take an L, and i got to take an L on this one because the kid was phenomenal on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and I think you could say a few things about it. One... I do think when he decided to transfer, he did the right thing. He went to a place that was the right fit for him. He went to a place that would believe in him and let him do what he did well. I also think part of it's probably the fact that he left the right place, which is Florida, which don't know if you saw my guy Mike White, but they almost lost to Army on Wednesday in their season opener. So you know Florida's still a mess. You know Mike White isn't the answer. But Nemhard comes in when Suggs goes out. And Nemhard was a star, man. Nemhard was the difference in this game when they needed somebody to step up, when they needed somebody to kind of take the burden of playmaking uh, over with Suggs out. Nemhard was that guy, and he had the best game that I have ever seen him play, finishing with 19 points, five rebounds, six assists, and he made every play down the stretch. Suggs was still on the court. It was really cool that Suggs decided to come back in. But ultimately, he served as little more than a decoy because, again, in Suggs' defense, he was playing on one good ankle. It appears as though, by the way, that it was an ankle injury for Suggs. It clearly wasn't an Achilles, otherwise he wouldn't have come back in. Uh, But it was a great win for Gonzaga. It was a great win for Gonzaga considering the fact that your best player goes out with an injury. You weather that storm, and I just thought it was a great night for Andrew Nemhard. I give that kid so much credit because so many people, not just me, have criticized him, and he was the star of the game. He was the reason that Gonzaga won. Only other takeaway from Tuesday night as it pertains to these two games is this. We're now a week into the season, 
And I will say there are a few teams that still have not taken the court yet. Tennessee has not taken the court. They are the preseason SEC favorites. Um, Florida State played for the first time on Wednesday night. Duke's really only played one big game. Um, Iowa's kind of been off the radar. Wisconsin's kind of been off the radar. But I bring it up to say this. We've basically seen everybody now, right? We've seen Kansas play a couple big games. We've seen Kentucky. We've seen Duke. We've seen Virginia. We've seen Villanova. Well, I'm telling you this. Right now, it feels pretty clear to me that there are two teams that are a cut above everybody else in college basketball, and that is Gonzaga and Baylor. Not to say that other teams can't get there. Not to say that other teams won't be in the mix at the end. Not to say they're the only two teams that can win the national championship. But I bring it up because it does feel like right now those two teams with the wins that they have, with the way that they've looked in big games against other good teams, are cut above everybody else. And here's the good news. They actually play on Saturday. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time breaking it down. But let me just say I'm really excited for that game. Really interested to see. I probably would lean Baylor. I just think multiple guards, the way that they play with all those guards. Also, the fact that Jalen Suggs probably will not be at 100% if he plays at all. I do think, for people who don't know how ankle injuries work, you know, you can kind of get through it um, on, on adrenaline and on excitement. But then you go home, you wake up the next day, and the thing's swollen like a softball. So I wouldn't be surprised if Jalen Suggs does not play in this game. That's why I would go advantage Baylor, even if he does play, he's clearly not going to be at 100%. But I think it'll be a really good game, and I do believe that right now these are the top two teams in college basketball. Uh, and by the way, shout out to Scott Drew and Mark Few for making that game happen. That is on Saturday, uh, and you better believe we will be talking about it on Monday's show. All right, really quickly, um, not a ton else I really want to talk in college hoops. All I'll say is this. I do want to give a quick shout-out to Shaka Smart, Texas Longhorns, Maui Invitational Champions. Uh, and I guess today is like my penance day. I got to start being nice to all the people that I've been mean to through the years. Uh, really, uh, in the past, I don't know if I've been mean to Andrew Nemhard, but I have criticized him for a lot of stuff. He was awesome, so I owe him an apology. And oh, by the way, Shaka Smart... It's looking more and more like I, I may owe that guy an apology. Now, it's early, and I don't want to get too crazy. And I will say, in my defense, he's been at Texas for five years, two NCAA tournaments, uh, zero NCAA tournament wins. His best team was with Rick Barnes's players in year one. So, like, I do think if I've been critical of Shaka Smart, that it's absolutely justified. By the oh, by the way, I'm looking at his win loss record right now. He is uh, 40 and 50 in Big 12 play. Uh, so let's not go too crazy here over uh, Shaka Smart. But I got to call a spade a spade, and they looked awesome this weekend in the Maui Invitational in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, shout out to Bill Walton, who was out of his mind, even crazier than he usually is. Uh, Bill Walton was a lunatic on the call this whole week, but Texas was the deserving champ. I thought they were the best team from day one to the finish. They dominated Indiana on the second day, and they were the better team against uh, North Carolina. And all I'll say really quick is that I do believe that if you go back and look at last season, this was a team that got hot late, that was playing well late, and that if they had if there had been an NCAA tournament, they were on the bubble, but they were probably on the right side of the bubble and were probably a team that was certainly talented enough to do damage once they got to the NCAA tournament. Although again, Shaka Smart still hasn't won a tournament game, which is why we've all been critical of him. 
But independent of that, got to give them credit. Uh, they are a veteran group. They are an experienced group. Basically, the whole team has been there for multiple years. Uh, the kid, Matt Coleman, who hit the game-winning shot, he is a fourth-year senior at point guard. Um, Courtney Ramey, kind of a crazy story with him. He was one of Rick Pitino's last recruits at Louisville. Eventually, obviously, decommitted when Rick Pitino got fired. He ends up at Texas and has been really good. Um, you know, Greg Brown, the freshman's been been decent. He's been in foul trouble. But I bring it up to say, Texas looks really good. They're experienced. They're playing the way Shaka wants them to play. And I got to give them credit. They were the best team in this tournament. They beat a good North Carolina team. They beat a good Indiana team. And I'll just say in the big picture, I was impressed by all three of those teams that I just mentioned. Indiana with a really nice bounce back win over Stanford to go 2-1 and one in this event. I think this is for sure Archie Miller's best team in Indiana. They they pass the ball well. They, they, they move the ball well. They have a star in Trace Jackson Davis. They defend really hard. And I also like North Carolina. North Carolina goes 2-1. and one. If you remember last year, they were the worst team in the, the ACC. Obviously, you lose Cole Anthony, but you bring back a lot of other pieces. They look really good, really impressive, and I think North Carolina's right back to where they were as the second or third best team in college basketball. Uh, all right, let's transition really quick to some college football uh, because, uh, yeah, how about some craziness in the streets? College football, uh, and we have to give an update to the insane, goofy, wild story that came out on Tuesday leading into my show on Wednesday morning, which was this story about Kirk Herbstreet basically saying that he believed that Michigan would quote-unquote wave the white flag and basically use COVID as an excuse to get out of the Ohio State game. And for people who don't really understand why that would happen or what that would happen or what it would mean, again, to reiterate, I've talked about it a lot, but it is worth repeating. The reason that would be huge is if Michigan, whether they really had COVID or not, uh, if they refused to play Ohio State or said they couldn't play Ohio State, it would put Ohio State's essentially their entire season in jeopardy for this very simple reason. Ohio State to date has only played four games. You need a minimum of six games to qualify for the Big Ten championship game this year. It's a rule they put into place this year when they obviously redid the season on short notice. And so Ohio State's right on the brink, right? Four games done, two games uh, to go with two games left in the season. And if they don't get these two games in, um, they don't qualify for the Big Ten championship game. Then the Big Ten essentially has to crown a fraudulent champion where the best team isn't even playing for the Big Ten championship. It throws the playoff picture into chaos, all that stuff. And so I bring it up because Kirk Herbstreet uh, on Tuesday night basically said that he believed that Michigan would use COVID as an excuse to quote-unquote wave the white flag so they wouldn't have to play Ohio State. And if they don't play Ohio State, they could screw Ohio State by not allowing them to get to the Big Ten championship game. And so maybe in the finals, you know, the final nail of Harbaugh's coffin, the only way he can beat Ohio State is by not actually playing them. Now, it sounded crazy at the time when I talked about it on Tuesday. And then, of course, on Wednesday... The story comes out that Michigan is, in fact, shutting down for COVID-related reasons. They are not playing on Saturday against Maryland, and it does put their game against Ohio State in the future uh, on je in jeopardy. It's also worth noting that while that story came out, there was a second story that came out that was equally crazy, which was the Big Ten basically saying that they would be potentially willing to revisit the rule that you have to play six games to qualify for the Big Ten championship game. 
Barry Alvarez, who of course is the famous Wisconsin coach turned Wisconsin AD. This is what he said about the topic on Wednesday. He said, I would think that if something would happen to Ohio State and they'd have to cancel another game, that's something that we have to revisit. They're, set, they're sitting up there, still ranked number four. Our league can't keep them from having the opportunity to be in the finals. And so if you missed all that, basically the two big themes were this. There was a belief, including from Kirk Herbstreet, which he then apologized about, that Michigan could duck Ohio State, which would keep Ohio State out of the Big Ten championship game. Uh, and then also that there was a belief that if they did that, Ohio State wouldn't have enough games to qualify for the Big Ten championship game. Well, on Wednesday, we got major updates as Michigan does have a COVID outbreak and Ohio State now doesn't necessarily have to play Michigan um, to get to the Big Ten championship game. And so I, I do want to touch on kind of those two elements really quick, but I still want to touch on Ohio State because I do think there's an interesting element here with Ohio State, with the Big Ten, with kind of the politics behind the scenes and how Ohio State, while I do think they deserve to be in Indianapolis, they are getting some special treatment that other programs have not gotten into. Uh, but let me really quickly start with Michigan because I do want to say this. is like, listen, dude, you guys listen, you know, you hear the show. You know that while I understand that Jim Harbaugh is a punching bag, and while I do understand that it's deserved this year, when you're sitting at two and four, you just lost to a winless Penn State team, you need a double overtime to beat Rutgers. Like, I do not believe that Michigan is actively trying to duck Ohio State. First of all, Jim Harbaugh, as I said on the last show, he's a competitive dude overly competitive. Uh, he's not doing very well in the win-loss department, but I do not believe under any circumstance he would actively avoid Ohio State. And I do know that obviously uh, with his team coming down with a case of COVID, you could argue, oh, it's so convenient. Well, what I would say is this, is that if you look across college football, essentially every program at some point has had some sort of outbreak within the program. I mean, you can literally go across the board LSU, Clemson, Florida State, just in the Big Ten, you've had Ohio State, Illinois, Minnesota, um, Wisconsin. I'm probably missing one or two, but the point is this stuff is inevitable, and Michigan, to their credit, have basically had no positives really since the season started, and even before the season started, they kept telling us that they had all been testing negative, and so because of it, it seemed inevitable that they were eventually going to have a COVID outbreak, and this is where we're at. So I don't believe it's on purpose. I don't believe it's intentional. I don't believe that they're actively trying to duck Ohio State. What I do think is interesting, though, is I do think it's interesting that we are now rewriting the rules for Ohio State. And before I go any further, I do want to say that I think it's a dumb rule, and I think Ohio State should be in the Big Ten championship game if they finish with the best record in the Big Ten East. And with a head-to-head -head win over Indiana, it feels just about inevitable. They would have to lose both of their last two games against Michigan State and Michigan, which is not happening. Uh, they would have to lose both of those games to miss out on the, on the Big Ten championship game, and that would be assuming that Indiana wins its last two games, and considering they're playing Wisconsin this weekend without their starting quarterback, Michael Penix, that feels unrealistic. And so I want to start by saying I believe that Ohio State should be in Indianapolis. What I also find interesting, though, is this, is that the Big Ten is willing to completely rewrite the rule book and the rules that they put in place to accommodate Ohio State, but there was another team about six weeks ago that also wanted to play some games, that also wanted the rules maybe amended so they could 
fulfill their 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 hopes for the season. And that was the Nebraska Cornhuskers. And maybe I'm the only one that remembers this story. Maybe it's because I don't have a life. Maybe it's because I'm a sicko and this stuff matters to me. But do you guys remember this story? Uh, week two of the Big Ten season, the Big Ten comes roaring back. And Wisconsin dominates on opening night. And Ohio State looks great and all this stuff. And then out of nowhere, Ohio State, uh, or excuse me, Wisconsin, a day after their season starts, has a COVID outbreak. And they have to shut down. And so Nebraska decides, you know what? We're going to try to schedule an out-of-conference game because we know the rules say that you can't have out-of-conference games this year, but we're only playing eight of these games to begin with, and one of them got postponed or got got canceled two weeks into the season, so we're going to try to play a game. And the Big Ten immediately shot it down, and immediately Nebraska fans became the scorn of the internet of, oh my goodness, how dare they try to play an extra game? How dare they try to break Big Ten rules? How dare they try to go outside the rule book to do what's best for their program? And they got crushed by the media, and they got crushed by opposing Big Ten fan bases. And I kind of said, like, look, I don't really care. I give them credit for wanting to play this season. And for wanting to play as many games as they can. And to get on the field and get better and compete against other teams. But they got crushed for it. And I thought it was totally unfair at the time. And I'll be honest. I think they look good in this situation. Because I think they saw this situation that is going on right now with Ohio State. And they said, we don't know how many games we're going to be able to get in. So what if we can only get in four or five or six? And it's not because I think they thought they were going to be in the Big Ten championship game, but I think it's because they thought they wanted to compete. And so I do think it was completely unfair by the media to decide to give criticism and scorn to Nebraska for wanting to schedule extra games, but then not give scorn to Ohio State for wanting to get into the Big Ten championship game and having the rule books uh, altered to accommodate them. To be clear, I think Ohio State should be in, but I also want to give my shout, a shout-out to my brethren in Nebraska because I think you guys got screwed too. I think if you wanted to play in Week 2 against an out-of-conference opponent, you should have been able to. I think that should have applied to every Big Ten school as long as the out-of-conference opponent was willing to test the same way that Big Ten schools were testing, which is every single day. And so to me, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Nebraska because I don't understand why I'm the only one saying that it's perfectly okay for Ohio State to alter the rule book to accommodate them, but not okay with Nebraska at all. And it also goes, by the way, very quickly to something that I've said from the beginning, which is I actually give Scott Frost a ton of credit this season. I know his team stinks. I know we're calling his coaching into question. But the one thing with Scott Frost from the beginning, this guy has wanted to compete. Even though he knew he had a team that wasn't very good, he was one of the ones, actually along with Jim Harbaugh, that fought harder for a season than anybody. You could argue that Scott Frost and Jim Harbaugh fought harder than Ryan Day did, harder than uh, Tom Allen did, harder than Paul Chris did, harder than P.J. Fleck did, and these two guys have teams that stink. And so I give Scott Frost credit. I know the team isn't good, but it's clear that his program wants to compete. His program wants to play. And I thought it was totally unfair that they got scorned six or seven weeks ago. And I think it's totally unfair now that everyone is totally okay with Ohio State changing the rule books to accommodate them. Finally, I'd also say on Ohio State, I do think it's worth visiting the idea of even if they get in these next two games, even if they get in a Big Ten championship game, even if they're undefeated, are they really going to have a resume that qualifies them for the college football playoff? Now, I know we've just kind of penciled them into the college football playoff. I get it. They're Ohio State. They're a huge brand. They have one of the best quarterbacks in the country, Justin Fields. They made it last year. They're a phenomenal program. 
But when I look at Ohio State right now, first of all, um, they're only going to play a maximum of, what, seven games now? And realistically, it could be as few as six if Michigan can't go next week. Um, And that's, of course, assuming that they can get in the final game, which would obviously be the Big Ten championship game. But I bring it all up because you start to look at what Ohio State's resume is going to look like. We're talking about six or seven wins versus, say, ACC teams that are going to have 11 games on their schedule, SEC teams that are going to have 11 games on their schedule, even Cincinnati, which is going to have 10 or 11 games on its schedule. Like, to me, it's a really interesting dichotomy of you look at what Ohio State's resume is going to look like at the end of the year. It's not going to be very impressive. First of all, it sucks for Ohio State that Penn State's terrible this year, that Nebraska's terrible this year, and that even if they get in a game with Michigan, they're going to be terrible this year. So what they're going to have is a win over... An Indiana team, which is going to have at least two losses by the end of the year, because I don't see them beating Wisconsin this weekend. They're going to have a win over a Northwestern team, which is good but not great. And what else do you really have? And if you've only played six or seven games, how does that compare to a a, a 10-1 Notre Dame team that isn't an ACC champ? A potential 9-1 Texas A&M team that isn't an SEC champ? A 10-0 Cincinnati team that does have some quality wins on that schedule. It's going to be interesting to see, especially because the college football playoff committee basically said this week that we are getting to the point where it's like, you got to play some games at some point. Ohio State, we know you're good. We know that you deserve to be in the conversation, but you got to play some games. So to me, it was a wild story for narratives and conversation. But I think the biggest thing is Ohio State really has to hope Michigan can get on the field just because they got to get some games in, get to hopefully seven games and have a more compelling resume than if they only get six games in. Uh, That's really about it. Uh, I don't want to say it's a quiet weekend in college football, but we're kind of at the point where like, we kind of know the deal with everybody, and I don't feel like there's that much to be excited about, right? Clemson goes on the road to Virginia Tech, but they're a 24-point favorite. They're not going to lose. Notre Dame plays Syracuse. They're a 30-plus point favorite. They're not going to lose. Uh, Florida's playing Tennessee. No disrespect to the Vols fans that listen but Florida's not going to lose. Alabama's not going to lose to LSU. And so to me, it's just, I don't want to say it's a quiet weekend, but it's just one of those weekends where it's hard for me to get really geared up because I don't see that game on the schedule that makes me feel like, okay, that team's in trouble. In terms of the games themselves, I would argue the most interesting game is probably A&M at Auburn. A&M's about a seven-point underdog, a touchdown, or seven-point favorite, excuse me, a touchdown favorite on the road at Auburn. I think what's going to be really interesting to see is essentially what we talked about last week with Auburn. Is Bo Nix as bad as we think he is? Is this rushing defense as bad as we think they are? And can A&M bounce back from a lackluster performance last weekend against LSU? If you watch the game, the commentary was pretty critical of Texas A&M, which was coming off two straight weeks without playing a game. The offense was flat. They did not play well. It was not their best showing. And the, uh, the, the, the announcers were basically like, you can't put this team in the college football playoff. This team stinks. And so I'm curious to see how they bounce back. I will say this for Texas A&M. They have an incredible defense. An incredible defense. Best defense in the SEC. When you think defense in the SEC, you think Georgia, you think Alabama, you think whoever. Texas A&M has the best defense in the SEC. They were phenomenal against LSU last week. I expect much the same from Auburn. I would lean in Auburn cover or uh, Texas A&M cover. Uh, as far as the rest of the college slate, I will say, kind of a big game, noon, Ohio State at Michigan State. 
I do think Ohio State wins. I think they win convincingly. I see the spread is about 23 and a half. I know that Michigan State is coming off a nice win last week. I don't see the scenario where this game is all that close or all that competitive. I think Ohio State wins going away. Um, the rest of the slate, Alabama at LSU. Sorry, we all love Coach O. Uh, that ain't happening, though. Not this week, not today. Um, LSU stinks. Their defense stinks. And their offense, I they got a freshman quarterback right now. They're doing their best. But that offense is really bad. They basically scored with under a minute to go. Otherwise, they would have been shut out against, Alabama, or against Texas A&M last week. The week before, they struggled against an Arkansas team that was depleted by COVID opt-outs and all that. Or not not opt-outs, but COVID stuff. And so I just think LSU's terrible. I think Alabama dominates. I think Clemson dominates. And I think the playoff picture, frankly, looks pretty similar on Monday to what it looks today. All right, I've talked long enough. I've kept my neighbors up long enough. They hate my guts enough. <laughs> so I'm going to get out of here. That is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Uh, and, if you, and if you enjoyed it, just make sure to do what you always do. Make sure to subscribe. You can do that on iTunes. You can do it on the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. Uh, also you can find me on YouTube. You can find me on Facebook. And as I said, if you have friends that listen to this show, if you have family that listen to this show and you want a nice little cheap Christmas gift for them, go find me on Cameo. I'll do a personalized video for you. It'll be incredible. They'll love it. You can find me on Cameo at Aaron underscore Torres. Uh, but yeah, that is all for today's show. I hope everybody enjoyed the college hoops the last couple days. And I hope everybody enjoys what should be a fun weekend of college football. But yeah, that is all for today's show. Uh, shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back next week, and I hope everybody has a great, great, great weekend. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.